Welcome, everybody, to Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 19. My name is Jim Stewart, signing in for Matt Martin. In knife news this week, we have National Knife Day to talk about. History, we have the Swiss Army Knife, and it's awesome, awesome, amazing history. Tech Tips continuation, discussing beveling and laying out, laying out those bevels on those knives and different geometries that you can use. And your Q&As. Stay tuned. Happy National Knife Day 2017, mother muchachos. You're listening to 19. What's that mean? The number of episode we're on. Oh, it's episode 19? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jim was holding up a card, and I was like, is it 2019? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I miss a couple Where have I been? No, yeah. no. So we just started a little cold because I'm just like, okay, recording. Let's go. Yeah. And and I hit it and, and I'm like, I'm, and, I, and, and I just pointed at Matt and he just starts going and I'm like, I didn't tell him what number episode it was. So I just held up the 19. <laughs> <laughs> so Seamless. <laughs> so, so this, this works every single time. Right. 60% of the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so welcome to episode 19, everybody. My name is Jim Stewart. With me is Matt Martin. Behind the Blade podcast, we have a great show for you today. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we kind of missed last week, not intentionally, just the days kind of overlapped, and then we had to make a... Uh, what do we, uh, commitment. We had to make a commitment to you guys because uh, I'm already committed to Jim. No, uh, we had to make a commitment <laughs> to you guys that we are going to try our darndest to record every Thursday like clockwork. And uh, we'll touch on some things in today's knife news that will hopefully shed some light as to our delinquency the past couple weeks. Um, but we apologize and we are back in episode 19 and we are glad to be here. And oh my God, I needed this. So bad. <laughs> you already feel better. I already. I always being, do. I always here. drag my heels here, and then as soon as we plug in, I'm just energized for sure. So let's get to what are you carrying, Jim? Me? I am carrying a very boring selection today. <laughs> it's my normal. Let me guess. An ultralight bushcrafter. Yeah. And a. You carry a yeah Victora Knox Swiss tool, oh, which is yeah. appropriate. A little bit more yes. foreshadowing. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, it is. Uh, uh-huh. And I think that's it, right? That's that's it. That's, that's all it. I'm carrying. I uh, that's what I carried into work today, and I have not had a chance to shower yet. And I am, Whew. I'm tired, but I just kind of caught my second wind about 20 minutes ago. So so ready to rock. So that's what I'm carrying today. Matt, good sir, tell me what you're carrying today. Hopefully, it's way more interesting than what I'm carrying today. It's a sack of sacks. <laughs> a sack of sacks. A sack of sacks. It's like a a, a a little armada of Swiss Army knives. I feel like. MacGyver at Christmas, I'll be honest with you. I've got <laughs> a... Uh, this one's pretty special to me. Um, actually, we're going to touch on this. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent for just a moment. Bear with me, guys. When I was a very young chap in the early 90s, my grandfather was a firefighter, and uh, he had another firefighter compatriot that was into knives. And when I, I had to be, I don't know, four or five years old, in the early, early 80s, 83 maybe, or something like that. Nice. And uh, he gave me a... Swiss Army Champion, which if you guys have ever seen the Champions, it's a it's a real it's the thing's probably an inch thick, yeah, in width I should say an oh, inch wide. Yeah, so it's, I mean it's, it's massive. It's got a significant amount of tools in it, which I'm not going to go over all of them. Um, but I got I saw this knife. I was over at Reed's a couple months ago at uh, North Star Trading Post, Sharpshooter Sheath Systems, and I was in there and I was talking to Reed, and uh, I said, "Hey, 
That is, since then, by the way, guys, the original one that I was given to by my grandfather's friend, Chester Adams, I will say his name is now long past. God that is that is soul. a very epic name. Yeah, Chet. It really is. Chet, yeah. <laughs> but uh, when Uncle Chet gave me this knife, it eventually grew legs in my early teenage years um, in a move. Unfortunately, it, it just vanished on me. And I was at Reed's over at North Star Trading Post, and I said, hey, that's the same Swiss Army <clears throat> champion that I had as a little kid. And I was in separate, this thing, this me and this knife were inseparable. I carried it as a child to school school all the time like this was my whoopee like this right. was my protection blanket I, I did everything with it and uh reed sold it to me for the astronomical price of 25 cents and uh just to keep things on the up and up and i'm reunited with my long lost swiss army knife even if it isn't the exact one it has all the same memories to it i am also carrying a black alox Pioneer, which is in my actual EDC rotation. I don't carry the champion so much, um, but I do carry the Alox Pioneer. And next to it is my other Swiss Army knife that I carry just about daily. And that was a gift from a virtual friend through Facebook. And it mm -hmm. is a Swiss Army Tinker, except this one is kind of special because it has the Memphis Bell artwork on one side. That's awesome. And on the other side, it has the 25 bombs painted on the side of the plane yeah uh, uh commemorating i guess or is significant in the sense that they survived 25 bombing raids intact as a crew there was no loss of life and it's that's pretty a, impressive that's a ridiculous yeah. number of runs yeah. so these guys were uh a crack number and i would like to thank uh you know i'm not going to embarrass him on the air but you know who you are and i know that you're a listener and i would like to thank you for this very generous gift and i love it and i cherish it and i outfitted it with this great looking brass bomb bead yeah that is, bomb bead is yeah, awesome pretty sweet so and then <laughs> next to that i have a very old not very old but probably 70s 80s um, late 80s, early 90s, I should Still. say, there's a hole in the all, and I, was, I found that out today. Um, huh. This is a Swiss Army Huntsman, which I think next to the Tinker, uh, if I were to go in order, I would probably say the Tinker is the most useful, um, the Alox is the most carryable, and the Huntsman is the best one to take camping. Um, nice. Next to the Champion, but the Champion's a little bulky, right? Because it right, has got the scissors, screwdriver, um, saw, corkscrew, all toothpick and tweezers. And so I think it's just a great setup. And I just really like that knife. That knife has always been in a camping bag. Uh, and that's it's just super useful. Knife. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I need to get me one of those Aloxes. Oh, those, uh, those things are, those things are sweet. They are yep. the balls. Like they are just, <laughs> they, uh, this is, uh -huh. there's something really magical yeah, about the Alox pioneer. Absolutely. And, I, and there's a farmer also out there that has a saw. Mine omitted the saw because um, as we uh, alluded to in the last podcast, last episode, um, I was going to retire my demo knife and I don't know if I completely retired it, but I do know that it is on the bench since getting the, uh, Alox and the Tinker. Well, now that you know that they kind of have a tendency to break, I'd like, rather like last a lot of them, 50 years right. or 30 years or whatever. Pass it down to Dio yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah, but not yet. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. No, that's yours. <laughs> no, this is, this is very cool. I can totally see carrying it, putting a little lanyard extension on there and then having it around your belt and then just pulling it out and then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or I did that, the leather slip job. Yeah. I made this and you know, fits. That's, and that's cool. Fits yeah. in there nicely. And, uh, I was also happy it's a little snugger, but it still handily fits the tinker. That's cool. So and I'm yeah. showing Jim a little leather, uh, knife slip that I made that holds my thinner Swiss army knives and a lens light micro delta wrap titanium that's uh, that I, as a flashlight it's very cool so uh i guess we will be back with the news
industry headlines from around the world. Brought to you by KnifeNews.com. Knife News for Knife People. All right, Mr. Stewart, what do you have ripped from the headlines? Today is a very important day, Mr. Martin. Oh, do tell. Today is a day where we will celebrate knives. Yeah! Today is National Knife Day. Total accident, by the way, that we're recording this on National Knife Day, but I'm pretty stoked about it at any rate, and I dropped my highlighter, so excuse me. One second. Well, Matt retrieves his highlighter. I'm back. That, that's actually how we celebrate National Knife Day. We actually smash highlighters. Yeah. It's a worldwide <laughs> celebration. Very bright. It goes right down. So so you guys already know what we're carrying today in, because uh, we don't really prepare for National Knife Day. We live it every day. Every day is Knife Day. <laughs> oh, I was carrying every day. Out too. So... <clears throat> oh yeah <laughs> that that's a fantastic knife too i gotta get one of those so on knifenews.com right now the main article that catches my eye was posted today how the grinch stole national knife day no rebound in 2017 the article goes on to his spouse and kind of and kind of uh lament the fact that knife industry sales are a little bit lower right now um that seems to be I don't know if that's necessarily true for our price point, Matt. What do you think? I no, I will say I vehemently disagree with that. <laughs> um, but there is a you know Jim and I were we're touching on it a little bit off air, but we didn't want to get too in depth because we'll lose all of our best talking points as soon as we turn the on air button. That, on. Of course, <laughs> of course, we constantly say to each other, "Shut up, save it for the air." Exactly. Yeah. So uh, no, you know they talked about this and they said that that sales have dipped industry-wide, but 5%, which is significant. Mm -hmm. You want to see growth every year, right? Right. Uh, You don't want to see any loss. And this is also against uh, a pretty, fairly abysmal 2016. Is that what the article was talking about? Yeah, yeah. 2016, according to the article, had a very poor showing. And 2017, so far, is down another 5%. And um, this is... This is um, kind of counter to what the predictions for the knife industry were. Was was that because you know last year was a presidential race? Um, uh, people were anticipating a, a Hillary Clinton win, right? And so, in lieu of that, you have knife sales dropping in favor of gun sales increasing, guns right. and ammunition sales increasing gotcha. because of gun control regulation. But that didn't happen. So the knife industry was like, awesome. Let's we'll, go. Awesome. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go back up because people are gonna you know, gun sales go down, which happens during Republican seasons. Gun sales go down, other sales go up, and knife sales right along with that wave, but this year has not shown that. And I I just I have which is crazy because I can tell you like our company has seen nothing but astronomical growth. And look, I'm I'm gonna be completely candid with you guys. I know that our trench crew is listening and you are the only ones that truly know the answer to this. But there are a lot of fish tails in the knife industry. Fish tails. Fish tails. I caught one that was this oh, big one time. Gotcha. And so you call your other custom knife making buddies up. You're like, "How's biz, bro?" And I'd be like, "Killing it, bro. Absolutely <laughs> murdering. Hand over fist." Meanwhile, you know they're breaking their ramen in half to get through the next couple of days. I've right. been there. Trust me, guys. Yeah. I, I we've all been there. Yep. And so, but if we were to actually sit down and be honest, and I am being 100% no fish story honest. Look, we're also a knife company. We're not in the garage anymore. Um, but we're, we're, we're doing much better than we ever have. Our sales mm-hmm. have gone up astronomically. And in talking to our dealers and distributors, these guys are growing. These guys, mm-hmm. So I think to Jim's point, um, I know Bark River is still doing well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everything's every, still- everything that we make is being sold. And 
the nice thing about the nice thing about this year that I can clearly say over last year, and I haven't told you this yet, is that there's a little bit more of a fervence. Fervence is yes. that a word? I, it is now. You right. said it. That's Coined right. Okay. By Jim Stewart. That's I think right. Fervence is a word. Contact Webs. Fervence. Fervence. I'm sure we'll get corrected. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get corrected. But 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 uh, there's a, definitely more of a fervor about our knives this year than there was last year. That's evidenced by last year we didn't have ten thousand Facebook members in our Dark River Knives group. Yeah, exactly. Now so we have like now we have sixteen thousand. I mean, so I mean, so the, the there's definitely more. I mean, so so we have more runs that are hitting the distributors that sell nearly out. Sell faster. through, yeah. I mean, sell you through, yeah, yeah. You guys are. Not typically, you're typically the slow burn type. Well, that, that's like, our that's our business model, yeah. right? And I can go ahead and just say that kind of publicly is that our business model is to do like four or five hundred of something and let it sell out over the course of like six to eight months. Right. And we consider that a good seller. We're seeing runs gone within a week. You'll see three hundred knives right? gone, and yeah, like and, a, you, I mean. As a production company, you guys are behaving more like yeah. a hot this week's custom maker. Right, it's, it's crazy. Weird. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, part part of that. Um, and we're 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 totally kissing each other's butt right now. But part of that was Matt Matt Martin's collaboration with us with the vehement Sog. What can I say? I'm in demand, I folks. Mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we we had a, we had other models that did the same thing, but that was probably the best one by far. That uh, that yeah. was a really successful campaign. That was a, yeah. a lot of fun. But uh, so 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 no, it's cool. So but to counter the news story. And we were kind of relating this to other production companies. So perhaps, and I'm not, I, I am speaking out of turn. I know that, but maybe Buck is seeing a dip or maybe the Chinese importers are seeing a dip or maybe Gerber seeing a dip. But in the tier that we're at and the clientele that we're at, we're not experiencing that. In fact, we're seeing brighter horizons right, right. Uh, than ever before. And, so. and and I hate, I hate you know, kind of jumping on the bandwagon because it does absolutely sound like, ha look at us. We're awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, we're above that. Yeah. We're above that dip. We don't need a recession. No, it's not like that at all. It's just this is the experience that we are genuinely having. And it's a different clientele. So, and, it's much different. And yeah. you also have to think that we're not typically, aside from a handful of mom paws that carry your line through your dealer distributor network, we're not point of sale sales. So we're not right. impulse buys walking through Walmart saying, you know what? Actually, I need diapers this week. I'm not going to go get that buck 119 that I've been, that I was just, that I just saw that I would normally grab. Right, right. And so whatever the reason for that is, or whatever the weight is on people's discretionary income or wherever it is that they're spending their money, they may not be selling knives that are in blister packs. Right. But I would be pretty sure that the knives that come in cardboard boxes are still selling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you and I both know makers that have backlogs of custom orders waiting that are being filled. That yep. they're getting new orders that all the time. Are fair, I mean, so, I, we talk about Brian all the time. Uh, Brian Brian Efros, yeah, absolutely. I, he's relatively new to the folder game. I, he's found his stride. He's making folders that, I mean, these they're great. They're not cheap. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking about seven, $800 folders and up, mm -hmm. and, and they're selling like hotcakes. And once he started... He got a great big push from his supporters and friends, right? Mm -hmm. But once they really got to the public market, boom, skyrocket. Right. So when he found his stride and he got his design and his execution completely dialed in, everything he does is a home run. So you can't tell me that there's – he is seeing no shortage of people willing to spend $700 on a right. knife. Yeah. I, there's no shortage of people spending $300 on a knife. You know, We're in the three to $500 bracket. Mm -hmm. I think – it's the 40, 20 to $40 knives that are probably getting glossed I, over right I now. I would say that's probably pretty accurate. Um, yeah, we're, we're, 
it's been argued that our price point is a little recession proof. Yes. Because and, and custom makers too. Custom makers are totally included in what I mean by our price point. Right. Um because people purposely go out and they plan this purchase. Calculated. It's it's always calculated. Um well we'll I mean even even down to cuz I'd say I'm on like the low end of the of this market. Right? Well, because so, you're you're the stopgap between uh, production and customer. Yeah, yeah, we're, I mean? we're 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 a stopgap in between that. I mean, but even even to us, people will stop and be like, "What knife am I going to buy?" I have looked at these fifteen models, and I like this handle material, and they've cataloged it, they've bookmarked it in their, in their computer. These the, the the same customers for the, the the knife that you're holding right there. Yes. Customers do that. What was the guy's name? JB Stout. JB Stout, man, man, that is a fantastic knife. And you know that he has a backlog of people that purposely saw the knife and said, I want to buy that. It wasn't because they ran up to him with holding, holding bags of money and said, and said, I'm going to throw this at you. Take my money. Right. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was calculated. I mean, yeah. I mean, the kid yeah. is throwing a fit in a Walmart, uh, you know, aisle and you're like, you know what, honey, manage this. I'm going to go over to the sporting goods and just wander <laughs> around and be like, I found this knife while I was over there. You know, right. You know, I think that is the, the, uh, what, what. <laughs> the article is reflecting versus <laughs> custom makers and semi-production. I, I would say so. Yeah. I would say so. So, um, Matt, oh. I know that you have some interesting news to move out, to move away from Grinch stealing National Knife Day. Let's get some good news. Let's get some really good news. And now, Matt, I know that you have got some great news. I do. And again, I don't like to talk about VM and knives on the podcast very much. But Apologize I, for talking about Bark River Knives. I feel like this is industry news. So Vehement Knives has secured a world headquarters. Woo! And we are very excited about it. We're having a facility built to our specifications, which is what's keeping me up all day and all night is making sure that we do this right. Um, we've employed some very skilled craftsmen in the construction and, uh, and yeah, and we have the new building and it's going in and it's coming together and it's starting to look like a knife shop and it is going to be, uh, BFA. I'll, I'll put it that way. You guys figure the rest out, but, uh, <laughs> it is, it is really awesome and we're very excited about it. Uh, we're bringing on, um, some increase in staff. And uh, I would say probably early n- next year, you know, January 2018, we're going to start retooling and uh, kind of growing exponentially in a an attempt to meet demand and to be able to produce uh, as many knives as the world will sustain. So, here, here. yeah, so that's big news coming from the vehement camp. Uh, we do have a new facility going in in Gladstone. We're right in the middle of new Sheffield. So it's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty awesome, Matt. I'm super happy for you, man. Thank you, sir. It's gonna. It's, thank you, thank I, I think you. it'll be. I think it'll be pretty epic. I. So, I tell you what. It, yeah. And you guys, if you ever find yourselves in New Sheffield, um, please do drop in. Just give me a shout because I think we're gonna do by appointment only because <laughs> right now we're still pretty skeletal as far as staffing goes, and I don't have time to entertain. Yeah, so you're a little. You're you're a little off the beaten path. Yep. So you're not going to get any random Girl Scout drop visits. No, but if they had cookies, cookies I'd be okay with that. I would be okay. totally okay with okay. that. Yeah. It, it, it's more tire okay. kitchens that I don't want. <laughs> right, right. By appointment only, except if you're Girl Scouts. I think I'll put that on the side. <laughs> okay. Actually. But it is on. Uh, it does have some woods on the property, and we are going to have uh, knife throwing. We're going to have hatchet throwing, and we're going to have archery set up on site. So come so, by, and I still have to talk to one of my good friends about doing a collaboration on a throwing knife that we'll be showing out at the new property also. So, Sweet. Yeah, pretty so, good. so actually, you know what? The, the, the comment reminds me of Mora knife. Um, so in Sweden, they have more knives. They have double hatchet axe throwing oh, on site. On site, no on kidding. On site, they do. Oh, great! They minds. do. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so so. It's a you know little extra history about yeah. more knife too. Awesome. So 
All right. Well, I think that concludes the the news. Unless you got something else, Matt. Nope. Everything else is old. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. And we will see you guys in just a little bit. Oh, I almost forgot the best part. Well, there's a lot of best parts. But one of the (laughs) best parts about the Vehement Knives World Headquarters, our new facility, is we have made provisions to add a full recording studio to the building. Yeah! Woo! And that recording studio is going to be for Behind the Blade podcast. So wait, we, wait, that's the appropriate time for me to go. Yeah, woo. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're going to have our own. That was rude of me and bad radio. I'm sorry. I got to put my phone on silent. Um, we are going to be putting in the recording studio. We already have the electrical run. We're going to be also acquiring that new computer, and we will be able to do. It's going to be close to Jenna's uh, photo booth for the knife company so we'll be able to have a professional lit photo studio equipped with uh, gopros and video cameras to be able to do unboxing knife reviews we'll be able to go out to the woods on the property it's on like two and a half acres we'll be able to go out there and test the knives and then for tech tips we'll be able to just walk downstairs into the shop and you guys will be able to see video feeds of us showing you the tech tips (laughs) <laughs> on how to, how to work in the knife shop. So, All inclusive, one location, easy editing for everything there. It's like um, Ball of America, at, but it, dirtier. I, I feel like a kid at Christmas <laughs> because this is exactly what I've always wanted to do. It's like the coolest I, clubhouse Oh, this ever. is cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> super cool. Okay. <laughs> so now, for realsies, we'll see you guys after the break. This history segment is brought to you by Crying Knives. You want to talk about history, Tom is uh, steeped in history. He dates back to A.G. Russell, Bob Dozier, the Morseth line. I mean, here's a guy who had his fingers in all kinds of lines of knives as he came up in the industry, and now he has carved out a niche for himself. So please visit him at... Tag. He tagged you at cryingknives.net. You can check out Tom Crine's work right there. He's got a great about page, um, gallery, his, his, his blog, frequently asked questions, and contact are all there on his page. You can follow him on Facebook on facebook.com slash group slash knives, K-R-E-I-N-K-N-I-V-E-S again, and on Instagram at instagram.com slash Tom Crine. I know on Facebook he does flash lottos, so go ahead and check out his group on there and find out the fun in the flash lottos and what that's all about. And we are back. We are back. I didn't even wait for you to clap to get the signature on the waveform, but... <laughs> That's okay. I'll figure it out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're good at that stuff. I apologize. Everything that goes wrong is my fault. Um, <laughs> nope. Nope. I, I, try to, I try to be very tight on the editing on our show. Yeah. yeah so so, so if you hear it and it's a flub, it's meant to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you know that was in there? Yeah, we've gotten that message. We're like, yeah, we knew it was in there. Yeah. We, yeah, it's like, we, we purposely that. added that two minutes after the end of the show because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today's history segment, you guys may have been able to pick up on. I feel like I'm a mile from my microphone. Hang on. I got to move a little bit. <laughs> Just <that's laughs> so professional. <laughs> one of those funny parts. Um, today, you may, you guys may have heard us talking in the what are you carrying segment. And I said that I have a sack of sacks and we are going to be covering. This is actually a pretty deep and rich one. The Swiss Army Knife. And you guys are knife guys, right? You guys are all, whether you're knife makers, knife collectors, maybe knife buyers, everyone should be knife users to some extent. I can almost guarantee that every one of our listeners has or has had at one point in their life a Victorinox or Wenger 
Swiss Army knife. You could probably put money on it. Yeah, that, that it's accurate. Yeah. So I mean, this is like saying we're going to do history on the fork. It's so relevant, and relatable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. This is great. So we're going to cover the Swiss Army knife. The Swiss Army knife is a pocket knife or multi-tool manufactured by Victorinox AG and up to 2005, also by Wenger SA. The term Swiss Army knife was coined by American soldiers after World War II due to the difficulty they had pronouncing Officer's Messe, the German name. That's the that's German for officer's knife. Yeah, just in case. Yep. There you go. And <laughs> yeah. You didn't know we were bilingual, did you? <laughs> I, I, I speak knife German. Yeah. So. <laughs> Learned it at Iwa. Yeah. Um, Swiss Army knife generally has main spear point blade as well as various tools such as screwdrivers, a can opener, and many others. These attachments are stowed inside the handle of the knife through a pivot point mechanism. The handle is usually red and features a Victorinox or Wenger Cross logo for Swiss military issue knives, the coat of arms of Switzerland. Um, I did reread through this, guys. Bear with me. Even as I was pre-reading it, the sentences are super bizarrely structured. And there's a couple in here that I think I, I have the reading ability to tackle. Okay. But we'll see. <laughs> Go slow and take your time. I will try. Okay. A lot of commas. Oh, my God. So many commas. <laughs> Originating in Ebox, Switzerland, the Swiss Army Knife was first. Oh, I should mention this is all brought to you by Wikipedia. We want to thank the folks at Wikipedia. And when they hit you up for the donation, just give them the 10 bucks. They'll never go away if you do that. And they'll never go away if you do that. <laughs> so, uh, um, originating in the ebox switzerland the swiss army knife was first produced in 1891 after the company carl elsner which later became victorinox one the damn it this is the one that got me earlier <sighs> i was monologuing and there were too many commas I, okay <laughs> Originating in Ebox, Switzerland, the Swiss Army Knife was first produced in 1891 after the company, Carl Elsner, which later became Victorinox, won the contract to produce the Swiss Army's Model 1890 knife from the previous German manufacturer. In 1893, the Swiss cutlery company Paul Bochet and C, which my French is terrible, so I'm not even going to try to put an accent on that, which later mm -hmm. became Wenger received its first contract from the Swiss military to produce model 1890 knives. The two companies split the contract for provision of the knives from 1908 until Victorinox acquired Wenger in 2005. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's 103 years, man. That's, did you have any idea <laughs> that these were this old, that this design was this old? No, I had no yeah, idea. I mean, that really blew me yeah. away. There's some, some. Well, less than that. It's the other way. Not 103, 97. 97. Okay. okay yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Okay. Um, good. <laughs> over 103 now, though. Oh, right. Now yeah, it is. I mean, I, now now it's it like is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that. Right. Um, oh, man. I said that on air. My math is so screwy. That was a guess, guys. We're knife makers, <laughs> not mathematicians. <laughs> I can do fractions and decimals pretty good. I do percentages. Um, <laughs> a cultural icon of Switzerland, the design of the knife and its versatility have both led to worldwide recognition. Indeed. Indeed. There's so much history here. Wow. There is. And okay, that's what go. we're going to dive into I'm, the I'm history shut up. Go right ahead. now. Yeah. So... During the late 1880s, the Swiss Army decided to purchase a new folding pocket knife for their soldiers. This knife was to be suitable for use by the Army in opening canned food and disassembling the Swiss service rifle, the Schmidt Rubin, which required a screwdriver for assembly. The Swiss Army knife was not the first multi-use pocket knife. In 1851, in Melville's Moby Dick, Chapter 107, Melville references... The Sheffield contrivances, assuming the exterior, though a little swelled, of a common pocket knife, but containing not only blades of various sizes, but also screwdrivers, 
corkscrews, tweezers, awls, this one blew me away, pens, rulers, huh. nail filers, and countersinkers. What? So it was referenced in Moby Dick in 1851. Which means it had to have existed before that. Right. Oh my goodness. Isn't that crazy? That's so the nuts. deckhands in, in Melville's book were carrying pre-Swiss Army Swiss Army knives. I don't know what they called them other than Sheffield contrivances. Sheffield contrivances. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh man. <clears throat> I thought that I thought that one really blew me away. In January 1891, the knife received the official designation Model 1890 and written in, I guess, Swiss? It's two L's. I don't know if that counts. It's pronounced Model. Model? Okay. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I'm just being facetious. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so. Um, so the Model 1890, the knife had a blade, reamer, can opener, screwdriver, and grips made out of dark oak wood that some say was later partly replaced with ebony wood. At that time, no Swiss company had the necessary production capacity, so the initial order for 15,000 knives was placed with the German knife manufacturer, Wester & Co., from Zollingen, Germany. From? Zollingen. From? Yeah. From Zollingen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These knives were delivered in October 1891. In 1891, Carl Elsner, then owner of a company that made surgical equipment, set out to manufacture the knives in Switzerland itself. At the end of 1891, Elsner... Began. Yeah, Elsner began yeah. Uh, production of the model. I'm, I'm looking at his name. It's L-E-S-E-N-R, so Elsner. Elsner, But, but I think yeah. it's Elsner, yeah. Yeah. Uh, began production of the model 1899. Elsner then wanted to make a pocket knife more suitable to an officer. And, and this is interesting that he says officer because anybody who's had the Victorinox, if you've ever opened up the main blade, they always say Officer Suisse. Let me check my Swiss tool. Check that. Let me check my Swiss tool. While you're tool. checking that, I will continue to read Okay. In 1896, Elsner succeeded in nope. attaching tools on both sides of the handle using a special spring mechanism. And what they mean by both sides of the handle is that you could actually have tools come out the spine side or the spring side. Oh, cool. Which is not common. Think of a slip joint that had a blade on the back. Like, you don't yeah. see that. So not, it really not, is. not so often, yeah. That was a Swiss Army innovation, a Victorinox, Victorinox specifically innovation. This allowed him to use the same spring to hold them in place in innovation at that time. Uh, this allowed Elsner to put twice as many features on the knife. On June 1897, on 12 June 1897, this knife featuring a second smaller cutting blade, corkscrew, and wood fiber grips was originally registered with the patent office as the officer's and sports knife, though it was never part of a military contract. So it was a little bit of an entrepreneurial leap Yes, in that, that case, which, it, is, which is still cool. He was an innovator. So, very cool. Uh, Carl Elsner used a cross and shield to identify his knives, the symbol still used today on Victorinox branded versions. When his mother died in 1909, just a little history into the name, Elsner decided to name his company Victoria in her memory. In 1921, the company started using stainless steel to make the Swiss Ar uh, to stainless steel to make the Swiss Army knife. Stainless steel is also known as inox, short from the French term acier inoxidable. Victoria and inox were then combined to create the company name Victorinox. Victorinox's headquarters and showroom are located in the Swiss town of Ebach. Let's go to Ebach. Yeah, let's do that. Let's so do that. Let's if, go to Ebach. If, if anybody's ever wondered why they were called Victorinox, like, because huh. I mean, that's kind of a unique blade. And furthermore, for people who didn't know that inox means inoxidable, like I have a pair of my grandfather's right. German calipers that says inoxidable, meaning that they were made of stainless steel, that you probably have an old switchblade or an old knife somewhere in a drawer that you got from a relative or picked up at a yard sale or flea market or something like that, mm -hmm. and it'll say inox on it. That inox means stainless. That is not a company. That's right. not the origins of that knife. It just means stainless. So, so looking up, looking up a little bit of French. Hey, hold on a second. Okay. 
What is what does ACIER mean? Because um, I A C I E R. Oh yeah, ACIER ACIER is that how you say it? ACIER 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 inoxidable. I don't know. And let's switch those languages real quick. No, not French. It's probably stainless steel. Is ACIER steel? Metal? Um, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's steel. Okay. ACIER is steel. So so inoxidable would would which which I'm guessing is how you pronounce it. Um, it's probably inoxidable, <laughs> but um, that would, that would be, <laughs> yeah, really, uh, they're, they're muscles from Brussels, man. So stainless in, steel. Inoxidable would probably mean um, doesn't 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 oxidize. Sidize. Right. Doesn't oxidize. Inoxidable. Well, I mean, if right, you were to right, say yeah, yeah, yeah. it in English words, like his is not written the way it's written here on my grandfather's calipers. Yeah. It's actually written inoxidable. Inoxidable. Like right. as common English spelling, not not with the Y's and stuff like that. And so it just says it's it will not oxidize right it's inoxidable so like inflammable except so? inflammable means it'll catch on fire <laughs> <laughs> right bad example yeah. but anyway <laughs> so acier inoxidable means, means stainless steel there you go so inox yeah. i-n-o-x so inox if you see that written on a knife that you're not positive the origins of that is only saying that it's stainless steel so there's a little side note very cool now here is are the interminglings of Victorinox and Wenger, and I'm wearing my Wenger watch today in celebration <laughs> of National Knife Day and the Swiss Army Knife article. Um, Elsner, through his company Victorinox, managed to control the market until 1893, when the second industrial cutler of Switzerland, Paul Bochet, 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 and C. How do you know this? Are you uh, reading along with me? Yeah. Oh, it was some kind of weird telepathy. Are you, can you see through my eyes? <laughs> You're projecting it. It's fine. Okay, so I'm just going to pause and let you read the French words. Um, okay. headquartered, <laughs> headquartered in Delamont. Thank you. <laughs> in the French-speaking region of Jura. I'm sorry, guys. This is an abysmal episode. <laughs> this is so important, though. I think this is critical to the history segment, so mm-hmm. bear with me. Um, they started selling a similar product to the Swiss Army knife of Victorinox. This company was later acquired by its then general manager, Theodore Wenger, and renamed the Wenger Company. In 1908, the Swiss government, wanting to prevent an issue over regional favoritism, but perhaps wanting a bit of competition in hopes of lowering prices, split the contract with Victorinox and Wenger, each getting half of the orders placed. By mutual agreement, Wenger has advertised as the genuine Swiss Army knife, and Victorinox used the slogan, the original Swiss Army knife. And I know <laughs> this no, this really baffled me for years looking at it. Uh-huh. And I had to dig a couple years ago, I actually read this. I don't remember any of it, but I'm not most of it anyways. But I had to read this to figure out so who really is the Swiss Army knife manufacturer? Right. And it's both. It really both is. But it was originally That's... Victorinox, and mm-hmm. then Wenger came along. They split the contract for the ordered half knives by the military. Right. And that's why one is the original and the other one is the genuine. The genuine is is, is Wenger and the original is Victorinox. Victorinox. That's okay. right. So now you guys, that's a big question. If you didn't know that, that's an important one. That's cool. Um, I just thought that was super cool. Let's see. Here we get into a little bit of the business machinations that were going on there. Victorinox acquired Wenger in 2005, once again becoming the sole supplier of knives to the military of Switzerland. Victorinox had kept both consumer brands intact, but on January 30th, 2013, Wenger and Victorinox announced that the separate knife brands were going to be merged into one brand, Victorinox. Hey. Wenger's right. watch and licensing business will continue as a separate brand. So Very there's cool. still Wenger, you know, as of 2013. Now, up to 2008, Victorinox AG and Wenger SA supplied about 50,000 knives to the military of Switzerland each year and manufactured many more for export. Mostly the United States. And I think if you go to Victorinox's website, they give you 
I think it's 6,000 a day. Really? That they put out. It's right. It's like 6,200. And they're like, this is the number of knives, Swiss Army knives we put out daily. It's the first thing on their page. Um, I'm looking for it. It's a huge red thing. It was massive when I looked it up, when I oh, clicked on their website. It's it's not there. Oh, it's not there. It's not it was there. an it's ad banner. Right but yeah, 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 I think it was 6,200 knives every day. That's still crazy, though. That's crazy. And to their point, most many more were for export, most of the United States. Many commercial Victorinox and Wenger Swiss Army knives can be immediately distinguished by the cross logos depicted on their grips. The Victorinox cross logo is surrounded by a shield, while the Wenger cross logo is surrounded by a slightly rounded square. On January 30th, 2013, Wenger and Victorinox announced that the separate knife brands were going to be merged into one brand, Victorinox. The press release stated that Wenger's factory in Delamont would continue. I'm sure I said that wrong, but in Delamont, it wasn't would, highlighted like the other ones, okay. so it's so it's free game. Would uh, continue to produce <laughs> knives, and all employees at this site will retain their jobs. They further elaborated that an assortment of items from the Wenger lineup will remain in production under the Victorinox brand name. Wenger's U.S. headquarters will be merged with Victorinox's located in Monroe, Connecticut. Wenger's watch and licensing business will continue as a separate brand, Swiss Gear. Swiss Gear. I have a Swiss Gear watch. I have a Swiss Gear sleeping yeah. bag. I did that, the same thing. I was like, dude, I have a, that's a Wenger sleeping yeah, bag. I that's didn't awesome. know that. No, no. Um, I bought my so I bought my Swiss watch in Switzerland. Oh, right. it, I don't know if it counts because it was the duty free section of the airport. Uh, but that counts. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was in Switzerland. Under there, so, is Swiss dirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> uh, many other companies manufacture similar-looking folding knives in a wide v- range of quality and prices. The cross and shield emblem and the words Swiss Army are registered trademarks of Victorinox AG and its related companies. Um, so we're going to kind of gloss over, if you guys want to read that, it's a really good article in Wikipedia about the 2007 Swiss military knife contract. I just don't think it's that good a radio. So we're going to skip over that. You're welcome to go to it. In there is a complete list of all the tools that have been, um, uh, implemented in their knives, even some more exotic ones. Some of them are pretty impressive. Wow. Um, but we will go to, and I had a good section assembly sizes issued to the militaries. Uh, oh, here we go. This one's kind of cool. Which one? This is the soldiers. Ah. Knives issued to the military by Switzerland. Since the first issue as personal equipment in 1891, the Soldat and Messer, soldier knives, soldier knife. issued by the Swiss Armed Forces, have been revis- revised several times. There are five different main models. Their model number refer to the year of introduction in the military supply chain. Several main models have been revised over time and therefore exist in different executions. <laughs> also <laughs> denoted by the year of introduction. I saw the pause. That was and I'm brutal. Like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The issued models of the Swiss Armed Forces are the 1890, the 1890 Osfurung. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, Osfurung. Osfurung, yeah. 19, Osfurung. 1901. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so I'm going to skip over that. Let's see. Uh, you know what? That actually didn't read as well as I thought it would, but it is an interesting read if you guys go yeah, and check it out. It's reading pretty well, so, but yeah, so it's wikipedia.org slash wiki slash Swiss underscore army underscore knife. Yes. So, yeah, it's pretty simple if you just remember the underscores. And so, I, truth <clears> be told, I mean, the things that were interesting to me were the naming of Victorinox. Yeah. The fact that Victorinox and Wenger were titans of the industry and actually worked together and then became one. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I thought that was pretty impressive. 
and the fact that these things are over a hundred years old that blew my mind also absolutely absolutely mix that with the fact that deep in our hearts we are all macgyver fans and all grew up worshiping the swiss army knife Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of history there so thank you for bearing with my terrible reading this week (laughs) Uh, i hope you guys found it interesting anyways uh, because i already read the whole thing in my head and i found it very interesting so i hope i didn't waste your time at all and we will be and Jim, thank you for the translation services. Hey, well, yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> it's a random random pronouncements. There we go, yeah. <laughs> um, Pronunciations. So we'll be back in a flash with some technical tips. This segment of Behind the Blade Podcast is brought to you by KME Sharpeners. That's Kilo Mike Echo. They are huge supporters of the podcast. And I tell you what, Ron over at KME, the owner, is like the Willy Wonka of knife sharpening innovations. He is constantly innovating, designing, inventing, creating, tweaking, adjusting, making so many things to make their system so versatile for anything that has a cutting edge. Everything from pepperoni slicers, scissors, Pen knives, fob knives on pocket watches, axes, you name it. They have some sort of contrivance, word of the day, by the way, that works on their system to put a razor-keen edge on it. They've also just expanded their plant out in New Jersey to help support the demand that they're going through, and it gives them a little bit of lab space to come up with new creations. So please go check them out on kmesharp.com, and please do us the courtesy of letting them know that Behind the Blade podcast sent you. We're back. We are. We are back. We're back. We're back. I'm looking at the thing, making sure it's it's zoomed way out, so it's just taking its time creeping across. Gotcha. Just so you guys know, we're looking at the waveform on the monitor to see if we're actually recording audio because it gives little (laughs) peaks and valleys, and it's going very slowly. So we're good. Um, Last episode, we talked about what it takes to design and profile a knife blank. So you guys should be waiting for last week with a blank. Sitting on your bench, ready to move to the next step. No idea what to do next. Thank you for waiting. Yeah. So what are we covering today, this week? Um, I would like to touch on bevel setting. There you go. At this point, at this point, I like to set the bevel of my blade to just start the grind. Even though even though we we both do a lot of work uh, in a little bit of different ways and how to do that. Uh-huh. And so what I'd like to cover is I'd like to cover bevel setting on flat grinds, hollow grinds, and convex grinds. Okay. So um, you want to lead us off? Uh. Yeah, uh, I think it's worth touching on. This is like to your point, this Mm -hmm. is not the end all be all. Um, Everybody does things a little bit different, but there are very specific reasons why we do it this way. So uh, I know some people will do like 36 kind of a half ass grind. Yep. And then they'll send that off to heat treat. Yeah. Which I'm totally against. Yeah. No, um, half ass grinds, especially if you're just like, well, I got something on there and it's not even side to side and your edge isn't totally centered and you didn't take the time to really kind of prepare in heat treat. You're going to get a little bit of warpage in that blade. Exactly. You're going to have a bias to the thicker side, which is going to create warpage. And furthermore, you're going to have stress risers. And the general consensus uh, is that you need to be at a 120 grit or higher, meaning 200 or 400, you know what I mean? So 120 grit or higher grit um, to avoid 
catastrophic stress risers in your knife. Right, right, which is caused by uneven heat dispersion when, uh, when you ca- quench? It's caused or... from the peaks and valleys of the scratch. Okay, so what okay, you're right, basically right. doing is you're you're putting in uh, a weak point at the bottom right, of right, that scratch right, and strong okay. points on either side. So, so, the, so the finer that is, the less chance you have of it happening. Think about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. absolutely, yeah. Y- yep, mm-hmm. and so, and this is... We're going to go preheat treat. Are you doing preheat treat, Jim? Um, preheat treat. Why don't, why don't you cover preheat treat? Okay. You, you're definitely more experienced at that. I'm definitely post-heat treat. Yep. And so, so mm-hmm. I grind my bevels uh, in the soft state on the steel, typically. Uh, occasionally, we do it in the hardened state, but I prefer to do it in the softer state because it's less work. It's easier on my belt. It's easier on me. And uh, and I can. So that's how I like to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so do you want me to lead off with that then? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you should have your bevels lined out. We guys gave you the, we gave you guys the tips on using a surface plate or a piece of granite or something like that. And some method of scribing a center line for the, your center of your edge, uh, should have about a 10 thousandths gap because you, we're going to go over freehand sharpening in a further segment. Um, but you should have about a 10 thousandths gap, 10 to 15, I guess would be safe. And you have your bevel height scribed on using the vernier caliper, uh, method that we told you yeah. to be able to scribe on yep. the height. Yep, and just covering that real quick, that's the blade height um, in in a measurement locked into your caliper, and then you just ride the edge. Yes, you know, as as your stop point, and then your other the other part of the jaw is actually what is scribing the line in. So you've already got your bevel on there. You just kind of ride that with the, with the blade height that you want, and then that's that's where your bevel is going to be. And it's a consistent distance from. I mean, it, it relatively consistent distance from edge to. Uh, scribe. Yes. All absolutely. the way. The know? whole way. And so, the yeah. Way. So we're there. Everything's ready to rock and roll. What I like to do, and this is a belt saving technique, whether it be hollow or flat. Uh, so either you're using a platen or a wheel, a contact wheel. I like to take a used 60 grit belt, which I have way too many of. <laughs> and, <you> do, <laughs> and I like to do my lead in bevel. So I will go to the wheel or the platen. And I will hold it edge up so that I can see that center line of the edge. And I'll hold it edge up and at a very obtuse angle. Imagine like a really, really terrible Scandi grind. (laughs) And so at a very obtuse angle, almost a 45, maybe not quite that bad. um, I will go up and I will grind down making several passes. And I I can't give advice on this because I go back and forth whether I go plunge to tip or tip to plunge. Mm -hmm. Typically on straight knives... I like to go tip to plunge. On recurve knives, I'd rather go plunge to tip. Yep, that makes sense due to the recurve. So you can start in one way and then follow it back the other way without, exactly. without grinding too much on your tip. So you're starting with a little bit more solid stock by the plunge Yep. versus versus a regular conventional straight edge knife where it doesn't matter so much. And so, I, actually, I will get like this uh, dog snarl. I'm sorry we're digressing, guys. I'll get this like... I don't know how to explain it. Mm-hmm. So you have your plunge that comes up from the edge side of the knife, right? Right. So towards the plunge, it'll actually be a little bit higher. Okay. Than you mean, it, you and mean... then it levels out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if yeah, yeah. I yeah, go yeah. plunge to tip on a straight bladed knife. If you go plunge to tip. If I that, grind. That and when sense. I say plunge to tip, guys, what I mean is that I am initiating contact with the contact wheel at the plunge or just in front of it and then drawing the knife through the wheel to the tip as opposed to starting at the tip and then driving it back to the plunge. Mm -hmm. So on a straight bladed knife, if I start at the plunge, I will have that 
little hump and it's pretty subtle but and you're talking about the top of the grind line will yes. hump up higher than what you wanted it to out of proportion to the rest of the line yes yeah and i do not know why that happens for me if i grind mm-hmm. that way but i did find out that if i grind tip to plunge Straight. It, it doesn't happen. Straight okay. as an arrow. Good. Don't need to worry about it then. Isn't that weird? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I mean, a it's bit. a strange thing. Yeah. I always thought that was yeah. very interesting. So anyways, get back to the point. Uh, we're doing our lead-in bevel, so I start with a U60 grip belt, and depending on whether or not... And at this point, you're not even touching the grind height, so do whatever's comfortable for you, but it's good to build good habits. So I will start on a straight knife from tip to plunge, and I will cut in. Now, I'm not cutting in my final plunges because even that U60 grit is still a little bit more coarse than I want to get that sweet radius mm-hmm. right there at the plunge, however small it is, whether I'm doing sweeping or just a straight plunge. Right, I still have right, a little right, radius right. in there. Um, so I'll get it pretty close, and I will do that all the way until it touches the scribed lines. Mm-hmm. And again, they're about 15 thousandths apart. So the first line, then I switch hands and I work with my left hand. And this is a challenge for a lot of people as they get started before they get the muscle memory. They have a dominant hand and that tends to dictate their grinds on one side or the other. Totally true. I I had the world's most perfect right-handed grinds and then I'd screw up the left-hand side all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You have a stroke (laughs) on the left side. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so there we go. So now we have a lead in bevel that touches the, uh, edge bevel boundary lines right and you want to practice here you want to kind of get your sea legs back it's not imperative that the grinds are even with each other because you're about to grind over them anyways but it's a good chance to kind of see is this going to be a good grinding day or not and so it's good to check and just try to keep it pretty straight and pretty even as you go through the whole process now what you've created is like i said the world's worst scandy grind you have about a 45 degree bevel that leads to a flat <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that that's that ten thousands edge that you described yes, on previously yes okay. that would yep. be the flat that i'm referencing there you're right right uh, and then you, what I like to do is I throw on a sharp 60 grit belt, whether it be wheel or platen. So for this case, we're just going to do, cause the motions are all pretty much the same. It's just the result. That's a little different. So we're going to do a flat grind for this just for sake. So I'll throw a 60 grit onto the platen for a flat grind. And now the game begins because the game is you have the peak of that lead in bevel meaning the transition from bevel to flat of the blade on either side. We're going to call that the peak of that bevel. You have the peak of that bevel, and you have your scribed boundary line on the flat for your grind height. Mm -hmm. So now it is a race between the peak of that bevel, the edge bevel itself, that 15 thousandths land, Mm -hmm. and the top of your scribe line. So now you start chasing those, and the goal of the race is to get them to end at exactly the same second. On the same pass. <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah. the game. It's a little hair raising, but believe us, it's entirely possible. It's totally possible. Yeah. And it's really, when you look at it that way, you're like, okay, you can tell when you're getting, you're climbing too high too soon. Yep. So you're climbing up the side of the blade too fast and your edge has not gotten close to that boundary yet. So what I like to do is I use, imagine uh, unlocking a door with a key, mm-hmm. that motion with the driving hand. So sure. if I'm grinding, um, the obverse side, remember we're edge up. So if I'm grinding the obverse side, then my right hand is the driving hand and my left hand is the support hand. And I actually support on my index finger using my thumb for pressure. On my left hand, if we're grinding the obverse side, reverse is mm-hmm. opposite, obviously. Driving hand is left, support hand's right. So your driving hand will help you dictate where you need to apply more pressure. So it also on the wheel, on a contact wheel, where you place on the wheel makes a difference. Yep. But uh, so just imagine like locking and unlocking a key in a door. So if you realize that you're climbing too high, then with your driving hand, twist it into the wheel, like twist the edge into the wheel and it'll start accelerating the material removal towards the edge. Right. Now and- you have fine and coarse controls using your thumb 
to drive things back. And you know what I mean? So you'll be able to, to kind of gauge that. And you, the goal is to get him to end right at the same point. So I come in probably eighth inch, maybe a 16th inch below my scribe line on 60 grit on a sharp 60 sure. grit. Right, right, right. And then what that does gives mm-hmm. me fudge factor to move up to 120 grit. Right. And then at 220 grit is where I really like to kiss the line, but I, I get very close, like within mm-hmm. thousands on 120 grit. And then at 220 grit, kiss the line. Right. And then you're pretty much ready to go for whatever finish you want. Mm-hmm. If you want a hand rub finish, then work up higher. If you're going to do a satin finish, then really at 220, you're clear to take it to your satin glow or whatever it is, a scotch bright wheel or cork. Yep. Um, and let's see. So I think that is the beveling process in a nutshell. And there's really, I can't tell you guys how to do hollow grinds on the radio. Like it's too, I have to show you because I mean, it's, it's not yeah. that much different than flat, but there's just subtle nuances that would take me right. five it, hours to explain. Especially, yeah. especially like towards the tip and specifically, yes. specifically establishing the hollow, the, the height of the blade grind, at least for me, yeah. you know, take, you know, um, take taking steel out of the middle and, and not burning through an inch underneath your tip. Yep. Not burning. through. Yeah. So, so that, um, but, but, but as far as setting it up goes, um, it's, it's roughly the same, but instead of using a platen, you're using a contact wheel. Yeah, exactly. That, so, that doesn't yeah. change a use 60 grit belt, right. an obtuse angle, you grind it right to the edge bevel boundary line, mm-hmm. and then you start working your way up and right. anything beyond that is a visual gag. So let's go into convexes then. Oh yeah. This, this is point. totally so, different. So, so this isn't total, this is totally different. I don't use a platen except when I'm cleaning up plunges. I didn't even know you used a platen cleaning up so, plunges. So, so. Okay, so it total total admittance time. I'm actually going to experiment with this on Saturday. Oh. So this is something coming up for me. What I'd like to do is I'd actually like to establish my plunges on a platen, clean them up a little bit, and then convex in front of it and blend back. Ooh. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So so here so here's my entire theory. I've done that, and I, right? I can help you in the shop and okay. show you where the pitfalls are, and okay. I think your convexing knowledge will supersede my lack of knowledge, and you'll be able to solve that. Okay, because I know that I can I, I can come really close to wherever I want. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're good at convexing, you can convex just like a small tiny eighth inch in the middle of the blade if you really need to, or you can do the whole thing depending on how much pressure you use in your angle of, of attack in there. But let's go back down to basics. Yes. So let's go to basics for a second. So you establish your plunge edge up, you tilt the knife, you tilt the tip away from the wheel and the plunge into the wheel. So you've already got the grind line scribed, you've got your plunge line scribed, you've got your edge scribed, um, at least a center line. So you can so you can visually see you've got the blue dicum or the black sharpie or, or how, however you want to do it, and you plunge in about a quarter of an inch up. You know, similar to what Matt's talking about with uh, with with a ex- super extreme bad Scandi grind. Okay, so you're you're setting a lead in bevel of your own right now. Um, and, and but but just on, but just on the plunge. Okay, just on the plunge. So just you have the kind plunge. Of a handle down attitude. Yeah, you come to, and it's a slack belt that is running horizontal. Oh no, no, the, no, no. This is edge up on the contact wheel. Oh, on the contact. Yeah, wheel. this is edge okay. up on the contact wheel, and the trick is to not go too deep. Gotcha. Right, because because you don't want to take off too much at once, because that leads to bad grind lines if you take off too much at this step right gotcha. here. The trick is just to get enough so that you have even plunge lines that are maybe a thirty second or a sixteenth of an inch deep on both sides that are even. Then at that point. You flip the blade over, edge goes down, and you start working the edge in up and down motions on the contact wheel from tip to plunge. And then once you come to plunge, you stop, you pull off. 
What? Then you dip your blade. What? I'm serious. I'll, no. I swear to God, that's exactly how you do you, it. Did you got to show me this? I, all right, this I, is. Yeah. I, I can't wrap my head around this right now. Right. Well, because because you're not going directly plunging in and moving your body in one mechanical motion like a hollow grind. Yeah. You're actually going up and down and you're convexing. You're like sculpting it. You're sculpting it. What? Is exactly what you're doing. So so you bring your grind up about a third of your grind at this point. Like so, if your grind height is 100, percent you're going so up 30. This is kind of your bevel hogging. Yeah. Uh, ritual yeah basically this is basically. witchcraft that's it, insane it, i've never <laughs> what I, I gotta show you oh i gotta my show God, you yeah so so um for reference to, to to break off on this um kyle verstig of average iowa guy on the youtube channel and of knife journal podcast i did a video with him four five years ago now where i went through all of this Oh, so if you go to youtube.com slash average iowa guy or or just go on go on youtube and search for search for um, average Iowa guy grind lines or something. Um, I, I go through exactly all this. Forgive me. I'm a lot fatter in that video than I am now. <laughs> so, 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 um, yeah, but it's up and down motions to establish that convex to go about 30%, um, from your edge up. So you're establishing a convex, but your edge is still like astronomically thick at this point. Gotcha. So, um, once your once those lines are even, you, you even out your lines on both sides, then you go up another 20%. So you're at 50%. Same method. Right. Same method. Just, just tip to plunge up and down. And then, and then, and once you get the motion in your lines actually relatively straight. No. It is. It is. No, I could just see this being a total disaster. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've, I've screwed up so many knives yeah. like this, Matt. I can't even tell you, but once you get it. It looks like you beveled it on on the on, on a platen or on something else because your line's so straight. Now why you're just used to going up and down there. Well, if you don't mind me interrupting, sure. No, why go ahead. do you? Because this fascinates me. Uh -huh. Why, if you are tip up and you're going through the rocking motion? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not tip up. I'm edge down. Edge down for both sides. For both sides, yeah. I'm okay, edge down so for you both just sides. set the lead and bevel tip up, and that's it. Everything I, else I is set, edge I set, down. I don't even set the lead and bevel. I set the plunge. The plunge. Just the plunge, so I know where to stop. When I come back, I have to see this. This okay. is crazy. <laughs> it's totally unconventional, but it works. But it yeah. works at least at least for me. This is how my father showed me right how to do this. But I but I got to show you too. It's, well, I know cool. every time Mike talks um, about grinding knives, he uh -huh. always does this weird motion. I'm like really? Yeah. <laughs> 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 he goes, yeah. Like, <laughs> like I don't grind knives like that. <laughs> that makes more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> so what Matt was doing is he was rocking his wrists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Back, back and down, but I don't really rock my wrists, but I do bounce my elbows if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. So so I go up and down, and then once once it's at 50%. I take my belt, which was that 60 grit, that same kind of 60 grit that Matt uses, where it's kind of worn out, and I swap it out for a fresh 120. And I'm going to... And, and it's totally not economical on belts at all. It's not. Right. But I'm going to burn most of this belt out. <laughs> so, at that point, I go right on the slack, and I follow what I had. And then that's how I clean that up. No kidding. And so I'm left with a very thick edge, and a and a, and 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 a grind line that's halfway up where I want it to be. Yeah. So at this point, I actually work the edge so a little bit. So at 120, you're still at about 50% grind height yep. uh, to what you've designated. Yes. Okay. So so we love the 120 grip belt in the convexing world because it's like it's like it's like free grind lines. Gotcha. When because it's so it's so sharp, but it's coarse enough to establish grind lines and remove material in a relatively quick quick yep. amount of time. So so the blades dipped, the blades the blades cooled the whole time. You know, same same way that you would do it. Um, but we go up on the slack and we just ride that, we just ride that convex bevel basically that we put on from, from tip to plunge to tip again. And then we, we dip the knife and we start taking it out of the edge to make the edge thinner. So if we'll do two passes on one side, we dip it, we flip it over, do two passes on the other side. Right. And then we just take a look at it. Once that edge is down to about, 
I don't know, 40, 50, maybe even 60 thousandths. Oh, thick. so it's really thick right oh, now. Oh, it's too. massive. Okay. I got to show you. It's, it's yeah, big. Like, I take mine yeah. down to 15 thousandths, yeah. and you're still at 40 to 50. I, I might take mine down to like an eighth of an inch in okay. that first pass. Gotcha. You know, so like at most, but then I go about half that distance. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and that is to establish. So, so right now, actually, if you think about it, because if I have that, just the plunge line and I do the up and down motions and I leave a thick edge, my geometry is actually pretty shallow. Right. Even though, even though side to side, they're far apart, they're still very shallow. Yes. So what you do is you bring your edge in a little bit. Specifically, you, you to, focus just on the edge. Right. Not to, blending it. To yet. make it more obtuse. Gotcha. All right. So at that point, it's easier to ride your, the top of your grind line. Does it make sense? Yeah, I'm making so, a face, so he's so, responding to the face. So, <laughs> so, so, so you make sure that's 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 dipped and cool and everything, and then you start rising your grind line. Now, a lot of people will argue that the way we grind knives, it's not possible to only grind certain parts of the grind. I call BS on that. I've been grinding knives for a long time. I can grind just the grind line, and not the edge. I mean, and it's and it's entirely possible. Right. You just you just pull back a little bit, so you're not on the edge. You're yeah. on the grind line. So you so you change where you hold you change where you hold the pressure. You start raising your grind line just evenly, and the trick is nice. Same same thing on the flat grind. Same thing on right. the nice even strokes. Plunge to tip, tip to plunge. However and you want to do it. Different motion because you're mm. are you uh, arms out now? Oh right? yeah, arm, okay. arm, arms out. I'm on I'm on top on the point. top slack belt. Yep. So instead of the key motion being natural, it's more like a motorcycle throttle Correct. motion. Right. Correct. Okay. Exactly. I do it a little bit differently than the motorcycle. I'll actually use just my thumb. Okay. So I'll push my thumb down to raise the grind line up. So I'm picking the edge up which pulls the grind line back towards the spine. Gotcha. Makes sense. Or, or instead of lifting my thumb up, because that's a little less, I'll actually, yeah, exactly. Just curl like your that, fingers. I'll curl these two fingers in, which dips the edge. Gotcha. So, so you, so you have to be observant of what you're doing. And I'm, I'm at the point right now where I can do one side perfectly and then do the other side perfectly. Nice. Um, but that's just because of practice. You should not do that. If you're listening to this right now and you're going and you're going through it and you're like, I'm going to do it like Jim does. Don't do that. Right. Yeah. You're going to waste a bunch of steel and your edge is going to be off. Do even strokes both sides. There you go. So, so you know, tip, you just go uh, plunge to tip to plunge to tip, dip, and then repeat it on the other side. Just gotcha. trust me. If you follow that formula, you're going to have a centered edge. Kind of like using right. uh, like the sharp, KME sharpener or something exactly. like that. Exactly. You want to match your strokes on either side. Right. And you want to have a terminal edge. You got to make sure that you're yeah. using even strokes both sides. Okay. So so you do the one side till you're comfortable with it, till it's totally clean. Dip the blade, flip it over, do it again. Raise it up a little bit. And you just keep on creeping that line up till it's hitting your scribe line. There you go. And then once you're done, there's, there's, other, there's other things to it too, like, like how aggressively you should follow your edge depending on what kind of grind line that you want like 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 oh like because yeah what this is a hard so, one to articulate this so is tough, yeah. if you were to okay imagine that you are riding on a this is going to get too convoluted <laughs> i just saw where that <laughs> okay. was going so so instead of having a, a grind line that follows your edge imagine a randall grind line how obtuse and how and how like 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 they're the top of their grind lines go from the top of the plunge to the center of the blade in a straight right, line. Right. That's that requires a different angle. Yes. At least at least for convexing on the slack. And I imagine the same thing on the flat grind. I've never done that on a flat grind, but uh, not, not many people do. I don't know. Right. And for a company that does use zero jigs, a little dubious on that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Yeah yeah. But, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so that's a tough one to explain. I think we're going to have to save that one for a video. Different grinds based on the positioning to the platen or the belt. Right, we'll, we'll have to put like an yeah. overhead camera Because that one gets a yeah. little weird, yeah. yeah. That one gets a little weird. Um, Matt and I probably do that by instinct. 
And so, yeah. and that's just based on experience. But um, hey, man, if we can catalog it, we can use it for our own purposes. Too. Oh, totally. So absolutely. So I'd love to see what my so, left hand is doing. Oh Honestly, man, me too. I would die to know yeah. because I'm like, why? Or even my right. My, I focused so much <laughs> on my left in my earlier years because it was mm-hmm. so bad that I ended up outpacing my right with my left. Oh, and wow. now I'm having to teach my right hand to grind as well as my left hand. So it never ends, guys, by the way. That's I'm crazy. sure, Tom, Crying, I'm sure you're out there laughing at this and our immaturity in this topic, but for us, it never ends. It's always a white <laughs> whale and there is no perfect knife, but, you know, it, it just is what it is. That's, that's awesome. But, um, but yeah, that's basically how, how, how you get the convex, how you, how you get the convex geometry. Um, I always grind hard and that's to make it easier to have control over your grind lines because when you're up on the slack like that you actually don't have as much control i found as if you were flat grinding because what i've noticed that when i was flat grinding and hollow grinding razors and stuff i have so much control right oh over, yeah over over everything compared to like convexing is a little little ambigu- ambiguous well i mean to me it's so, the difference uh of carrying a car battery with both hands in front of your belly and carrying a car battery at arm's length, perpendicular <laughs> to, parallel to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you have a little Excuse bit more me. control, Excuse grinding me, yeah. edge up, uh-huh. elbows locked in, uh-huh. everything's fine. You're relying on muscles and very little skeletal work oh, right. when you're convexing. Knee, knee and hip movements yeah, yeah, with, with your elbows. Yeah, yeah and yeah, everything right. kind of works together on that. And, yep. uh, and uh, but, but once you get it down, it goes very quickly. It truly does. Yeah, I've seen so, you hammer them out pretty quick. Yeah, and we get a decent edge, so... Um, that's, that's basically how you do that. When you, when you grind to sharp though, you come down to, you know, 20 thousandths edge roughly. Mm. So, so you remove enough material in the right way. And then you actually take blending strokes from the top of the grind line. Um, and the edge, you actually hit the center of the blade and you take blending strokes till it's even. So it hits exactly the top of the grind line and the edge at the same time. Same principle, different interface, right? Instead of a rigid interface now is the point where Jim's saying that he chases the bevel to the edge and to the top of his designated grind right. line, his boundary. Right, right. So you have one contiguous grind from the top of the grind line all the way down to a flat edge. Right. Um, so at that point, we'll bevel our edge like you normally would on a, on a flat grind knife. Okay. And then you go right back to convexing, but you just do a lot of forward motions. You do you squeeze the last two fingers in Curling your hand those to, to yeah. dip the finger down, and you grind through the bevel till you get very, very close. Not too, but very close to the edge. Gotcha. And, but, you know, constant dipping. So you don't run all the way to the edge? Uh, We don't, no. That's just, that's on the wheels. Yeah, yeah, actually, we we have satin glow polish wheels, and they carry the rest of the way. The entire edge on the wheels doesn't touch for more than a second. Right. So we'll just do a quick zip right across, no pressure, no pressure, just blend it out, and you, you 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 can very clearly see the burr pop up. Oh, oh yeah, side. I've been there. I've done it. Yeah, grind <coughs> right. ends and stuff like that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, you just do a quick zip, zip. It should only take if your grind is right on the convexing from the slack. It'll only take one or two passes each side, each side yeah. before before your burrs there, and then you burnish it off and satin it, and you're done. That's yeah. I tell so, you what, gang. I don't know about you. I and I'm not BSing here. I learned a bunch in that because uh, the only convexing I have experienced was terrible is abysmal honestly uh, to the point where i gave it up 100 percent, and it was on uh grinding knives that were pre-ground nice and okay. so i did not know the from scratch now i have done it from scratch and it was equally abysmal so <laughs> is what it is cool well thank you very much sir for that i thought that no, was thank very you, enlightening sir. and yeah. uh we will I, we'll see where this picks up at so give us some feedback on the tech tips uh, I know we're kind of dragging out making just one single knife in a lot of different ways, but uh, I, I think it might be pretty interesting for our trench guys or somebody who's interested in checking things out. But in the meantime, 
We are going to take a short break, and we will be right back with your Q's and A's. Our A's. Your Q's. Our A's. What's happening, gang? Matt Martin and Jim Stewart of Behind the Blade Podcast reaching out to all you entrepreneurs, business owners, advertisers, letting you know that we have got a direct line to your clientele's ear. If you are in the knife, gear, sharpening, I don't care if it's backpacks, whatever it is, flashlights, hit us up. If you want to reach out to a very specific clientele and you know how hard it is to advertise to the knife industry because we're blocked on most social media and SEOs. So if you want to reach directly into their ear holes, please drop us a line at info at behindthebladepodcast.com or you can go to our website behindthebladepodcast.com and use the handy quick link found in our contact form. There you go. And through that correspondence, we will hook you up with all the information needed and we will be glad to relay the quality of your products to our listeners. Welcome back, everybody. This is our absolute favorite segment. The Q and your A's. Or your Q's and our A's. A's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I meant. First time around. So... Um, we love, we love answering these questions from you guys because it really connects us with you guys and lets us know that, that lets us know that you guys are listening and we, we love it. It writes itself. We love this segment yeah, it's so pretty, much. It's easy for us. That's why there's no preparation that goes into it. And, uh, <laughs> like you said, it's a good time to engage with everybody. And I know we posted the question box a little bit late today, so we have only a couple. Uh, I do have a question that I would like answered, and I would like mm-hmm. your participation, but we'll save it for the end of the segment since we only have a few to hammer through. All right, cool. Jim, what is our first question today, sir? First question from Adam Jerome. Good, sir. Do either of you call out Pakistani knife makers slash sellers on non-knife Facebook groups? They try and peddle their trash in traditional archery groups, and when I call them out, other members berate me for being intolerant of amateur makers or a straight-up racist because I don't support Pakistani knives. If either of you have experience in this subject, how do you navigate these waters? Well, I mean, simply put, truth be told, is that I don't Facebook. (laughs) So let's start there first. I don't Facebook well and I don't Facebook often. Um, If I was on social media... I would treat it no differently than I would the sidebar ads for mustache wax. And <clears> if <throat> I if I don't care about something, then I gloss over it completely. And I definitely do not let it rent any space in my mind, nor do I waste any breath or fingertips in feverishly typing away that these guys are persona non grata. If you're a moderator, then even still, if you don't want that in your group, or you own the group or whatever, then delete the post. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's worth the waste of breath. And I also, especially if you're getting backlash from your peers in these traditional archery groups, I don't think it is worth the tarnish on your reputation or personality by being a rabble rouser. And I'm speaking frankly. You ask the question, I'm going to answer it. So I, I don't think it's worth your reputation or your image being sacrificed just so that you can have the last word on somebody in a different country trying to sell something of dubious quality. 
if they were being forceful or if they were being an agitator, then contact a moderator, have them blown away. If they're spamming, bounce them. You know what I mean? But I don't. But to turn around and call them out, that's a waste of time. I'm not a caller yeah. outer. I've got so much stuff. See, I didn't cuss there. So much I- stuff on my plate that the last thing I give two S's about is somebody trying to peddle something on a group that isn't my favorite. So I would suggest that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, <clears throat> we we know that these knives typically are... Uh, what What's the term that we use for, for that level of Pakistani Damascus? We call it, what, soda can and bumper? Yeah, Chevy Damascus. bumper, Chevy bumper Damascus. Yeah. Chevy bumper Damascus, because it's, it's, they don't even know what it is. Right. They're just putting it together as best they can poorly. Um, we know that it's garbage, but... Um, so 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 to emphasize what you can do, pulling it out of what Matt's what Matt said is that if it really bothers you so absolutely much, contact the moderator and just say I'm not comfortable with this, and I just want to let you know, <clears throat> and then leave it to them. Especially if it's not your group. If it is your group and you don't want that on there, then it's your group. Do what you want. Yeah, yeah but even if it's your group, I suggest just <clears throat> deleting the post. You know yeah. what I mean? Because yeah. really, the only you're you're not making look that guy gets yelled at. All day, every day from a number of makers. And yeah, you know what? I will mess with them when they PM me because I get them all, every day. I get personal messages, private messages, them whatever it is. Uh, you buy my my exquisite handcrafted knife. You buy my knife. You buy my knife. Uh, and Or they start with hello. And you're like, oh, here we go. Yeah. So I'll mess with them a little bit because I know there's a person on the other end and it's funny. And they get aggravated just like they're <laughs> aggravating me wasting my time. So there is a little bit of that. But as far as publicly calling somebody out... Honestly, I think that's a complete waste of time, and I think it could be spent so much better doing something positive. If it is detrimental to the group, follow Jim's advice, contact a moderator, and you don't have to be like a candy ass about it. You don't have to be like, this guy's bothering me. I need a safe space. But you can be like, look, this guy is trashing up this the place. Let's shake him loose. And and that's it. The end of it. Waste no time on it. Focus on some good bear Kodiak Magnums. Get back into that. You know, focus yeah. on what you're in the group for. So absolutely. That's that's my two cents on it. So absolutely. So <clears throat> next question from Michael Spath. This this one looks like it's for me. Are the spines of Bark River soft? i.e. differential heat treat making the spine soft. Sometimes the 90-degree spine on my barkies deforms or rolls when I strike a ferro rod. Just looking for some learning on the topic. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Um, That's a question that we've gotten in the past before. The simple answer is ferro rods are case-hardened to like 70 Rockwell. Are they really? Yeah. Is that what showers the sparks so well? Well, that's, that's, I think... I think so. That's what showers the sparks so well, so that goes in deeper. Our, Our knives are typically... What 58, 60, 60 sometimes tops, 61. 61 maybe, man. So that's you're taking nice. a you're taking a thing that's softer and you're scraping it against a thing that's harder. That's why the spines are deforming. There you go. I mean, and it, and it's really that simple. So are they so, are barkies differentially heat treated? Um, they're differentially heat treated from the Ricasso through the Tang, and and so that's your that's your degree of separation. It's not along the spine. It's along it's along the front of the handle. So back. yeah, from the Ricasso back <clears throat> is tougher because it is a lower hardness. Correct. Right? It's, okay. it's a lower hardness. So yep. like at the very tip, um, I think I think our knives rock well at somewhere around forty. Uh-huh. Not or not the not the tip of the handle, but the tip of the not the tip of the blade, but the tip of the handle, and then that slowly increases till the Ricasso, and then from the Ricasso to the tip, it's it's the blade steel that we're talking about. Right. So somewhere so between fifty eight and sixty one. Fifty eight and sixty one, depending on the steel. Uh, some some steels go to sixty two. Okay. But um. For as much as we can, that's how we differentially heat treat. So, so from the blade spine to the edge, it's all the same. So it's deforming because ferro rods are case hardened. 
Yeah, harder, harder than steel. Yep. So, so that's that's why. Once you get through that, you're fine. Yeah. So, so, but you just got to get through the case. Oh, so it's new. It's it's new new, ferro rods. New and newer ferro rods. Gotcha. So yeah, once you once you get through that initial layer, it doesn't deform the blade anymore. Ah, interesting. So, so yeah, because because it's softer on the inside. So that's so you could actually season it by using the provided striker with the ferro rod. Oh yeah, and then once all the black is scraped off, you should be fine. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. So and then and then and then having I I prefer the striker anyway because it's easier to use and it's a little bit more specified. Uh And and you just use that and it's yeah. Many schools of thought on that. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I. I use the back of my Felk Neven because it's there, but I've also I've, the, you realize how actually this is going to lead me right into my conven- my question that I have. Okay, <laughs> so can we do my question next? <clears throat> we can do your question next. Please. Okay, okay. So going to this, um, mm-hmm. it has become very vogue to not carry the striker of your ferro rod because it's one more thing to carry. Although half these guys carry like Frost River Isle Royale backpacks, which is like the heaviest empty backpack you can buy. Right. And then they right. save ounces, not even a fraction of an ounce on the striker, which so, is strange yeah. to me, or it's one more thing to lose. It comes on a string attached to your ferro rod. Now, I'm guilty thin, of this too, yeah. guys. So, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but truth be told, there's this is my question. <sighs> Let me formulate this well. Okay. <laughs> Where do we draw the line between cool and practical. Ooh. Because I, uh. and I know this is dangerous water, mm-hmm. especially as a seller of knives, mm-hmm. but let's be honest. Now, when it comes to knives specifically, there are certain lines or designs that appeal to either the task, your eye, and your heart. And uh, rarely mm-hmm. your pocketbook, if it matches all three. <laughs> yeah. But let's just say I carry... As I talked earlier, either my uh, Swiss Army Tinker, my Victorinox Tinker, or my Alox Pioneer, and I made this leather slip mm-hmm. for my pocket, which also carries my uh, lens light micro, little, little flashlight. Light. Yep, little yep. flashlight. Mm-hmm. Now, typically, that lens light actually is hung off of the clip to my wallet chain, and it's okay. always kind of flapping around my right upper thigh. You know what I mean? It's always <laughs> yeah. right there, and it's always I can reach it with one hand, and it's always ready. Right. Well, I thought it'd be cooler to have it in this leather slip, partnered with this matching pocket knife. Right. The pocket knife, typically, uh, whether it be the Tinker, the Demo knife, or the Pioneer, they either have bales or key rings on them, is clipped to a trigger snap that mm-hmm. goes to my belt loop and then tucks in my back pocket, so I can retrieve it one-handed. Right. Now I sacrificed that again for this pocket slip because I thought it was cooler. And what I'm finding is that I love holding this thing. I love looking at it, this little ensemble that I crafted. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the way it feels. I like the way it carries in my pocket without the pocket knife turning sideways and stopping my leg from moving forward. It feels 10 times heavier than it actually is just because of the orientation. And so I I love Mm -hmm. all this, but I've noticed that it absolutely takes me two hands to retrieve every tool all the time. Correct. And it bums me out. Because it's not as fast. Now, I know I have to use the flashlight, or the, I'm sorry, the pocket knife two-handed because I have to open the blades and all that right. stuff two-handed because right. it's a slip joint. Um, but the flashlight, I'm used to actually having one-handed operation. And I'm like, am I doing this because I think it's cool or because I think it provides any mechanical benefit whatsoever? And I think it's strictly because I think it's cool. So are people sacrificing the convenience and effectiveness of the striker on their fire rod because uh your fire steel because they see other people on the internet do it and they think it's cool or is there any real practical thing and i'm asking this of you guys too who are listening is where 
do we draw the line between practical and cool? Because I think mm-hmm. I think there is a little bit of a, gray, a no man's land there where you're like, you know what? It's cool enough that I don't care if I lose a point of practicality. But some of this stuff gets gets crazy with EDC or with bushcraft specifically. Those two groups. And uh, which look, guys, I'm a huge bushcrafter. I, I enjoy it. I'm not an expert, but I mean, I spent a lot of time in the woods doing things like building camp and shelters and stuff like that. So I'm hip to it. I dig it. But when are we kind of going off the reservation and making ourselves look like fools thinking that we make ourselves look cool? So so it reminds me of a quote by I think more it was Morris Kachansky. OK, so it was Morris Kachansky. And I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly word for word, but it was basically no true woodsman would ever be caught out in the brush without a lighter or matches. Yes. And no and 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 if you are caught out in the woods without lighter or matches for starting a fire, specific and he's talking about specifically starting right. a fire. Um he probably doesn't know how to use a bow drill anyway. So, oh, nice. So, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a little bit of a harsh term, and I don't mean this specifically towards people who like to do the kind of primitive kind of fire striking. No, I think there's or, gratification or, in doing that in and of and, itself. And, Some and, people tune cars so, and other people oh, oh, do this. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of firecraft. I love flint and steel. Yes. I love fire steels. I love the bow drill. I love the fire sled. But when I still got in the woods, I'm carrying a Bic lighter. Right. I mean, and it's because it's because I, I want to take absolutely no chances because something like that's super important. So it's practical to carry the lighter. It's cool to know how to do it with a fire steel. Yes. So so specifically talking about the fire steel, it's practical to carry the striker meant to strike the fire steel, which will strike it more aggressively than the spinier knife. Yes. But in a pinch, it's cool to use the spinier knife. To have a knife that can support that, right. So so I, I just think it's something that you really need to that, that we just need to consider. And we need to consider it knife makers are or just really in everything. What's so so when we talk about inventing or we, we talk about inventing practical things versus cool things, it's we have to ask ourselves the tough question, am I solving a problem that actually exists? Yeah, good one. Yes. Right? In this case I thought I was it, mm-hmm. unfortunately it's a hydra and I created two more problems, which is Okay one-handed retrieval right and one-handed operation but what i did is i solved the problem of the pocket knife tipping over in my front pocket yep even though i don't carry this knife in my front pocket i carry it clipped (laughs) to my back pocket oh yeah you know what i mean so it's an interesting thing and look guys i i i i bring this before all of you is that i'm wondering this myself i'm wondering where i draw the line as to my loadout Am I doing it for cool factor? I don't even do pocket dump pictures on line or anything like that. <laughs> you, I'm just like, I yeah. like this. You know what I think? You it's need neat. a copper and brass watch. Yeah, it, you need a pen right. and a spinners. handkerchief. Yeah, yeah and a lots spinner. of spinners. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so where where are we on that? And I think it's something that uh, could use some reflection. And what it also does, guys, is this isn't being judgmental because I really don't give two craps about what you carry in your pockets or how you do it. And honestly, I love the art artistic side of pocket dump photography i, oh, I was oh, just yeah. telling jenna the other it's day cool. i was like i hate sound like a nerd i say i really like these i like looking at them mm-hmm. i think it makes um products look desirable mm-hmm. which look 
I feed my family off products. There's a lot of companies that feed their families off products. So when people take artful shots of their stuff and it makes that product look desirable because they're proud to have it, then that only helps everybody. It makes yep. the owner feel good. It makes the company feel good. And it makes a prospective buyer feel good. And, and so, future prospective buyers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm fully yeah. supportive of them. But are we tailoring uh, our actual carry to our pocket dumps or are we tailoring our actual carry to stuff that we need, use, and can retrieve easily and right. not be burdened with 12 pounds worth of crap well, on our well, you might also be coming from the fact that you already had a system that worked extremely efficiently. You know what? I am a reluctant changer. Right. I am well, a very well, reluctant well, changer. And it's not even that. You've already discovered something that works extremely efficiently, and you've discovered a different way that doesn't work as efficiently for you. But what if somebody doesn't carry a flashlight on them? Go oh, That point. buys what you're holding right now and then carries a flashlight on them. Yes. Right? Just for the sake of, oh, I never thought about that, but I'm going to get one of these and put a flashlight just like that, and now right. I have both, and they're a little bit more prepared. Right. For the so, day. so if you were to, if you were to, like, say, start producing those slips, yeah, and you were to make a pocket dump thing, and you say, like, what do you guys think about these slips? Um, I'm thinking about making 15 of them. I bet you they'd sell. <sighs> Probably. So, yeah. So, so it's it's you're providing yet another venue for someone else to find something that's more practical for them. Because it is practical. Yeah, it, I mean, it is. I mean, I mean this little so, setup right here, I'm telling yeah. you guys, like right now it happens to have the Pioneer, the Alox Pioneer and the lens light in it. And it is the coolest thing since a pocket on a shirt because right there are a, a true day's tools. Yep. Now, mm -hmm. a task light is good during the day because you can use it to look under a desk or in the back of a drawer or inside an engine compartment. I carry a stronger flashlight at night because you can use that to look down an alley sure. or you yeah. know in a dark room. So during the day for like every day, daylight hours, every day carry, that is all you need short of a tactical mm -hmm. situation, at which point I will typically uh, have a fixed blade I wish sure. I do right now. I'll have yeah, a fixed absolutely. blade on my hip because that's my one-handed knife. I don't need a one-handed folding knife, even though I have dozens of them. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I use a fixed blade for fixed blade work and then for opening packages and doing light work, screwing stuff together whatnot. I'll use the Swiss Army knife, whichever variant, and a task light. Right. So, I mean, that's my real everyday So, so you've, got, you've got two separate options for yourself for different scenarios. Yeah. So I carry the same thing with my Ultralight Bushcrafter and my Swiss Army knife. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. So, so it, it's it's... It's everything I really need to cut versus everything else I need to grab or twist or pull or bore into. Yeah, screw so, or whatever, yeah. So um, I think it's just another venue to introduce someone else to a different way of uh, of carrying a product with them that they've always wanted to carry. That maybe they don't already. That maybe they don't already. And, and it's up to do. them to develop their so, own system. And maybe this slip will end up in the back of the drawer gifted to right. somebody else. And they'll develop their own system. Or they'll say, you know what, this is... To them, the same way having an ALOX clipped to my back pocket loop yeah. and a flashlight dangling from my wallet. I don't know many people wear wallet chains. <laughs> you know, it is when you think about so, it that way. So, yeah. So, but yeah, anyway, like the overarching thing here is that was a really good discussion about practicality. We're acting cool. a little lyrical, yeah. but yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, but it was <laughs> good. Cool. Yeah. So, um, all right, let's 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 go back to the Q's and A's, though. So, that was a good, that was a good Q, Mr. A. Thank you. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, from Ben Maravich, tech tip question. Any tips or tricks for getting a good finish? Oh, God. If you find them, tell me, please. Oh, yeah. yeah we're, all of us are chasing that perfect finish. Um, we we sat and glow everything at, at Bark River, but the number one thing is um, a good finish coming off of your grinder. Good machine finish. A good yep. machine finish coming off of your grinder. That means taking the time to make sure that you get all of the previous step scratches out. Now, that being mm -hmm. said, not everybody yes. has a grinder. Uh, okay, so true. So you can, uh, I mean, if you're mm -hmm. doing it for the labor of love, you can draw a file, meaning holding, imagine holding a mill bastard file uh, in both hands. So it's running uh, parallel to your chest. 
mm-hmm. and you can angle it slightly and draw file to get nice flats. And then comes the real work where you start going in with abrasive stones, getting the scratches out, and then moving to sandpaper and getting that hand rub finish. Yep. So taking it to the most primitive level, that is how you can achieve a strong hand rub finish. Um, it is a lot of work to go from there. Typically, we're going to take it to the belts and then yep. get it close and then hand rub it. Yep. But um, yeah, you're right, Jim. It mm-hmm. has to come off the machine looking pretty decent and pretty crisp. And then yep. however you do it, it's been... I mean, you're a good buddy of mine. If you ever want to shoot me a text message or something on something specific that you're grappling with, I will try to help you. But I will tell you that finishing and satining a blade is still my white whale. And I'm always working on it. Now, I can always achieve it to meet our criteria. But uh, at the end of the day, it takes longer than it should. So I guess that's Mm -hmm. the point. So anything is possible, but doing it efficiently is the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But good question still. Definitely. So from Tony Flynn, if you want to start making blades and money is not a real obstacle, what machines do I need to start with? I'm more about buying once and crying once. If money wasn't an obstacle, then I would never make knives. I would just buy them. (laughs) I would buy them like crazy. (laughs) If I was like, like, you know what? I am rich as hell. I've got disposable income coming out my ears. Why would I want to go eat this much grit, breathe in phenolic (laughs) dust, and itch when I do G10? No way. I would just buy them. It's a little (laughs) bit of a facetious answer. (laughs) No, get a KMG. I mean, that's uh, that's That's, me. um, KMG probably gives you the best bang for your buck yep if you want to get a little bit more specialized you can always look up tw90s that uh, and all their attachments which include a um, a platen a small wheel attachment a regular contact wheel and a um and a, a surface grinder yeah it's got a surface grinder outlaw machines it's another great one to look up wilmont grinders are another one to look up wilmont's are sweet they're pretty gucci uh they're a little spendy but you get what you pay for and they're i mean it's about as american as apple pie old yeah. wilmont grinders. I, would, I would say between i would say i've never used a wilmont grinder but i have seen them used and i know people who swear by them i know and i just so, I, I haven't been able to pull myself away from my kmg and uh, I'm just well like, because you know it still what? works and it works it for you works. and you still make awesome knives yeah, i can still yeah. make an okay yeah. knife you know what i mean so, so and I, I don't think it's the grinder. Whatever's going wrong with my knives, it's not the grinder's fault. Okay? So, yeah, I think if it, but, if it spins consistently and true, um, yeah, I would still go with the KMG. I think if you were going to go insane, look at Lino Desi. Lino uh, Desi, yeah, you were telling me about him. You're I know it, and I'm just waiting yeah. for that extra $6,000 so I can order one. It's like a Ferrari-level grinder. It is. is. Oh, right? my God. Yeah. Like I, I swear to God, I have stared at that grinder collectively longer than I stared at centerfold pictures when I was 13. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I love it so much. That's awesome. I just cannot stop looking at it, and it has so many options. <laughs> and uh, I would say sometime in 2018, I'm going to pony up the cash and just get it. It's not cheap, but I want it. And with the loadout that I want, I think it's going to help our shop exponentially. I think so, too. I think uh, especially if you're going to get into folders later yeah. on your own, you're definitely going to want that surface grinding attachment. Yeah, and it his surface grinding and attachment. Oh it is, it's really nice. Oh it truly is really nice. Yeah. So, all right. Last question from Pierce W.J. Taylor. What's it feel like to make knives that are so sought after? I don't know if I, I have that feeling. Know. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. know if I have that feeling. Uh, so, Pierce, yeah, I know he's a customer and friend and mm-hmm. supporter of Even Nice for a long time. Um it's uh you wonder you wonder what it feels like i'll tell you exactly what it feels like and i I can speak from a little bit of experience it's uh it's a little bit overwhelming because at some point you go from the guy on blade forums asking questions like ben's question like how do you guys get a good finish or uh you know where can i send my stuff for heat treat or what's 
you know, the ever, well, what's a good steal to start with? You know what I mean? Like, how, how do I temper a file? You go from that level to um, people getting aggressive because you're not making enough knives fast enough. And so it's a little inundating. And I'll be honest, it uh, drives me to become a little bit more of a recluse every week because of all the messages we get and stuff like that. And um, so I have to kind of throttle back on social media. And I love all our fans and supporters and customers and everything like that. And I love interacting with them and whatnot. But it can be a little bit much at times when you're getting blown up constantly and you're getting hammered with, you guys should make this and you should make that and you should make this and you should make that. And you're like, let me get my head around what we're currently working on and let's just keep moving forward without all the editorials and stuff like that. So Pierce, to be quite honest with you, it is a two-edged sword and it feels really good and it's very flattering. It also is very humbling. And I feel like at some point, um, every maker that is uh, on the path to making it, I don't think anybody ever makes it, but any maker who's on the path to making it, um, in air quotes, um, it reminds them to live up to the hype. And that drives me to make better knives. The more compliments I get, the more I feel like I'm getting one over on somebody and I need to rise to the occasion. So I never feel like the compliments are um, backloaded or I guess frontloaded. I don't feel like I've earned any compliment I've ever received. <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever yeah. earned any compliment I've ever received. And that's my own personal hangups. So anytime people say nice flattering things about our work, I'm like, holy cow, I've really got to tighten it up and try to live up to the expectations. So that's how it feels. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I really don't have much more to add than that other than other than I have a huge backlog of knives that I'm expected to deliver within a certain amount of time. And it's great to get the compliments um, from the side. But, uh, you know, any, anything negative that comes through tends to hit me like 20 oh, times yeah. harder. Oh, I've you seen know. you on Instagram that one that one line, you'll be at 50,000 know, oh, yeah. remarks. One guy will be like, it's okay. Jim's like, God, it's like, I suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. and it's terrible. Yeah. But, um, but we just, you just pick yourself up from whatever, whatever has you down and you just keep on plugging away. Um, after you organize what you know that you need to do. I mean, so, um, it's just life, man. I, uh, so. I mean, yeah, uh, you know what else it is? What's that? A podcast. That's, is a podcast <laughs> <laughs> very good all right and you know what thank you guys for listening to uh to the show yeah this is a weird one tonight but uh <laughs> yeah it was uh it was good we got a lot of stuff going on in the periphery so it was nice to kind of just wrap with you guys and i hope you guys enjoyed the history section and the tech tips and the newses uh but we will talk to you next week you guys have a great night Thank you, everybody, for listening to Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 19. My name is Jim Stewart, signing out for Matt Martin. Hey, you know what? There's a subscribe button on the bottom of that iTunes page. Go ahead and hit that so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes that come out from us. Also available on Google Play. You can hit that follow button on SoundCloud and Stitcher as well, and your favorite podcast aggregator on Android. I prefer Podcast Addict and also CastBox. Do not forget that on the bottom of our website is a beautiful little donate button. If you feel that we've given you something and you'd like to give us something back in return, go ahead and do that via that button. And thank you guys so much, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>